Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Therapeutic Thursdays, where we sit down with content matter experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is James Kalis, and I will be your host today. I am a director of pharmacy with Henry Ford Health System in Detroit, Michigan. This podcast is part of an educational initiative entitled Examining the Evidence for Reversal of Direct Acting Oral Anticoagulants, which is supported by an educational grant from Alexian Pharmaceuticals. It is for informational purposes and not approved for continuing education credit. And additional information can be found at www.ashpadvantage.com backslash stop DOAC bleed. Now, reversal of direct oral anticoagulants or DOACs is often required when patients present with major life-threatening bleeding. And during the webinars that are part of this educational initiative, we discuss the evidence-based guidelines for reversal of DOACs and the agents that could be used for reversal. Oftentimes, reversal happens shortly after patients arrive at the hospital, and usually that happens in the emergency department. And given the severity of bleeding, uh, the bleeding event, many, many patients will then be transferred to an ICU setting. Critical care pharmacists are in a great position to be involved in the reversal of the DOAC if it hasn't occurred already. And they have an important role in management of these patients with major bleeding after reversal. Fortunately, we have someone with us today who deals with this on a regular basis. Jason Villar is a clinical specialist in neurocritical care at Advent Health Orlando in Orlando, Florida. Welcome, Jason. I appreciate you taking time to speak with me today about this topic. Thanks, Jamie. I'm happy to be here. So, Jason, when you receive a patient in your ICU who has had their anticoagulation reversed, what are you assessing in order to determine if the patient responded to the reversal? How do you know if that patient isn't doing well despite reversal? Yeah, I mean, that's the ultimate question, right? Um, Did the reversal agent we provide do its job? I mean, there there are a multitude of ways that we can actually continue to assess our patients in order to see how they are actually doing as time progresses. And historically, we had a pretty clear way, at least from a lab perspective, to assess how well our agents have worked. For instance, with warfarin-related bleeds, we gave vitamin K, we gave FFP, we gave uh, factor products, whether it's PCC4 or APCC. And then what we did is we drew a, a lab called 9R and we looked at how well or how much did that 9R decrease and where we at going on. Unfortunately, with DOAX, we really don't have any validated data to suggest that certain factor 10A in, um, inhibition or DTIs such as um, the bigotran activity has a correlation with the bleeding, and thus we really don't often uh, obtain or procure those levels. Maybe in some certain clinical scenarios we'll do that, but not routinely. However, that's, again, not something that we would really use overall on a consistent basis, but it doesn't mean that we can't use lab testing as to our advantage in some scenarios. So one scenario that I might see using lab parameters as a benefit of DOAC reversal um, related bleeding is maybe someone that was bleeding and they had overdosed on a factor 10A inhibitor and they're continuing to bleed and maybe you're using it as a baseline 
And then you're possibly targeting um, some values such as like less than 50 or less than 30 based on the International Society of Thrombosis and Hemostasis recommendations. Um, another way that maybe I would use a lab parameter for assessment of how they're doing is uh, something like a viscoelastic hemostatic assay or VHA. Um, a few to come to mind are Rotem or TEG. Um, at my institution, we use TEG. And what we're doing is we're looking at uh, the R time. And if that's prolonged um, and they are bleeding, we might want to intervene there. But really in both scenarios, um, what I just discussed, both of the things that had, they had in common were they were actually bleeding. And so that's ultimately the most important aspect of the assessment is the clinical aspect, which really brings us back to understanding and knowing um, what the major, de major bleed definition is. And is it bleeding in a critical site? Were they hemodynamically stable or is there any overt bleeding? Actually, there is some guidance available out there for us uh, when it's regarding to the effectiveness of hemostasis. Um, there's a working group at the ISTH that suggests determining effectiveness based on certain classifications. These classifications are deemed whether or not the bleed, if it was visible or non-visible, was the bleed musculoskeletal area. Or for me, um, what I'm used to in my realm is being in the neuro ICU, is, is it uh, an intracranial bleed? So what I'm looking at personally is something like a CT head. Um, is there stability in those CT heads, whether it be a six hour or 24 hour? Is there no pronounced expansion? Is it less than 35%? Um, we also look at functional outcomes, uh, scoring tools like the extended Glasgow outcome scales. That's just in my realm. There, uh, for maybe something like the musculoskeletal assessment could be, is it swelling? Is that compartment swelling in that uh, intramuscular area? Um, is that worsening in that sense? Do they need to go to and get another fasciotomy? Those are clinical aspects that really are probably a little more important than laboratory, but again, you can use them uh, in conjunction with one another to help assist to see how you're progressing, if you're getting worse or if you're, not, if you're getting any better. As far as overt bleeding or hemodynamic, uh, from a, in a hemodynamic stability standpoint, I mean, that's pretty easy to determine how, whether or not they're clini clinically deteriorating. I mean, you're looking for a blood pressure, you know, less than 90 or a MAP less than 65, right? Or is there a profound swing downwards in terms of their systolic less than 40, more than 40 points, or maybe they're uh, having a, a significant decline in their urinary output. Additionally, if they're just visibly bleeding and you can see it in, uh, you know, your maybe a flexaseal bagger, for instance, or and you're seeing, or maybe you're having to replace blood products consistently, more than two units, or maybe your hemoglobin consistently drops. Those are all things that I use as a clinician to help see whether or not I think the initial reversal that we provided was doing its job. Definitely seems like you're bringing in a lot of different data points about your patient to try and figure out, uh, you know, how they're doing. So if your patient seems to be worsening or if, you know, your team suspects that the patient is still bleeding, would you ever give another dose of the reversal agent? And how would you go about figuring out what dose to give? Yeah, I think uh, a variety of scenarios can actually play out in, in, in this setting. I think, but uh, in all settings, I would take into consideration a few things. Number one, I would actually make sure that any scenario you're in, the half-life of the agent that you were reversing in the first place 
was considerably still in the system, or maybe you have some consideration that it's still in the system. Because uh, you got to remember, these patients are already prothrombotic in a prothrombotic state. And if they don't have any drug on board, what are you doing really with a reversal agent in the first place, right? Another issue too, maybe you don't have someone that is a normal, I guess, organ or they have organ function that may have been uh, compromised. For instance, like a lot of our medications are renally eliminated. So maybe you have concern that there's a very prolonged amount of elimination going on in these particular patients. Now in that setting, and along with the provider and you as a team saying, hey, this person is not doing any better. Yeah, I definitely consider actually providing a reversal agent and redosing them. And, and that really comes down to how were they initially managed with said reversal agents. So for let me give you one scenario that might come across for a, a lot of us. And so let's say you, you think that there's some residual drug that's on board. And the first scenario, the patient gets reversed and that, that initial reversal agent is a blood factor like four-factor PCC. Okay, what would I recommend? Well, it really lends itself to what dose they got up front as a uh, blood factor product. So in the recent guide, uh, recent guidelines, there was an update in their recommendations on how they dose a center or four-factor PCC in, with regards to a fixed 2,000-unit dose. Well, across the spectrum of guidelines, if you review it closely, they have a wide variety of weight-based recommendations as well. And so that might play a role of how I would redose depending on the total amount they got up front. So if they got a 2,000 unit dose, right, I probably still would stick with the 25 units per kilo. And that's going to be given at the discretion of the team along with consistent bleeding um, I would also give another 25 units per kilo in the setting if you did give a 25 units per kilo dose up front. If you go with uh, the recommendation of 50 units per kilo up front on a reversal for a DOAC-related bleed, I really don't necessarily like to give an additional dose of 25 units per kilo. However, the literature out there available does suggest that it has been used uh, and safely used. Uh, Nick Panos and colleagues um, actually had the largest data set out there, about like 660 patients or so in intracranial hemorrhages. The majority of their patients got the initial dose of roughly 50 units per kilo, but about 5% of patients did get repeat dosing as well. So, and they only had a low thrombotic rate as well. So that's something that we're taking into consideration. So those are the patients that you initially would get um, when you receive them, they've already received blood factor product, but not all institutions really use blood factor initially. So let's say you had a patient come in with a factor 10A bleed and your institution uses um, indexinate alpha. Well, I've had this question before and a physician or a a provider practitioner wants to redose based on a continued bleed based on clinical exam or maybe an expansion on, on CT. I wouldn't recommend necessarily repeat dosing of the indexin alpha uh, as it was not studied in that fashion and uh, maybe uh, consider actually, again, doing a factor product at that point in time uh, with a 25 unit per kilo dose uh, as well. Uh, If in fact you had someone with um, maybe for instance, the Bigatran, um, that also 
might lend itself to a certain scenario. So there's actually data out there for patients with bleeding events on dabigatran that have overdosed to get repeat dosing of um, idiocizumab. But what I would actually lean myself toward, towards would be actually using, if hemodynamically stable, mind you, getting someone to get a hemodialysis catheter in and doing a so, slow efflux dialysis because to allow for that distribution to clear the medication. But a lot of patients actually did receive the initial upfront five gram dose of diucizumab, then get a hemodialysis catheter placed and then remove that drug. But some places they can't, or some situations you can't. So that might warrant itself another five gram dose. Um, but as I mentioned over, Overall, my repeat dosing for blood factor products, whether it be blood factor to blood factor or specific agent to blood factor product, would usually be a 25 unit per kilo dose. Okay. Well, I, I, I definitely can see how the uh, impact of kidney function on Devigatran really complicates things in this situation. Um, and I like that strategy of combining your reversal with uh, actively removing the drug with hemodialysis. Um, I'm sure that sometimes you get, you'll get patients transferred to your ICU from another institution where maybe they've been reversed with an agent that isn't your preferred um, reversal agent at your site. What do you do in that situation? I mean, that's a great question. And, and it really comes down to making sure we're prepared, of course. And it's a common question that we get as a referral center. I'm, I'm sure you get that as well um, at your institution. Um, but at our institution, you know, if so let's say someone comes in and we're about to give them index and alpha, but we find out they gave blood factor product, it would make sense that we would avoid um, giving the index and alpha because none of those patients, and this is the way we approach it at least, none of those patients in the Indexa trials actually were included if they had received previous blood factor product. Now, I have heard some institutions limit themselves to giving index and alpha based maybe on a contingent ba contingency basis, maybe if they were on a fixed dose or 25 units or less, um, and really restricting it to a 50 unit per kilo. Um, but that's just kind of anecdotal. Um, I know for me, I would personally go to factor product, even though that's our, not our normal go-to, just because... Um, um, I wouldn't want to include patients that weren't really reviewed based on the next trials. And mind you, this is the most important part isn't just giving them a reversal agent and they're transferring to you. It's really going back to what we said earlier is assessing those patients first and foremost. Do they even need it, right? And if they do, in fact, do it and the team comes to that consensus, then you're considering this discussion what we're having right now. Okay. Uh, one of the concerns with the nonspecific blood factor product reversal agents is that there's at least theoretic, a theoretical, if not real, increased risk for thrombotic events uh, with higher doses. Um, and I would, I would also think that the risk could be increased with higher cumulative doses when you're, you're giving a second dose of a nonspecific reversal agent. So should higher doses uh, or repeat doses of the nonspecific agents just be avoided because of the concern for thrombotic risk? Yeah, that's, that's a, a good question that you have there, um, Jamie. So, Historically, and of initial concern, uh, we were concerned with the high doses of factor product that we were providing, thinking that this posed a risk for increased thrombosis. 
a lot of the retrospective observational cohort data really lends itself to more of a, a concern of initiating or starting up either VT prophylaxis or restarting oral anticoagulation as soon as possible. We've seen with the higher doses of 50 units per kilo, not really confer in an increased risk of thrombosis in the trials. And that's with, in particular, the, the factor products. And what we've seen actually, even in uh, reversal agents with a specific data, such as the idarucizumab, um, along with the index and alpha for uh, their respective trials that got them approved, what was interesting is that we found the majority of the data uh, with those people that had thrombotic events actually had uh, a more pronounced effect the later on you went without anticoagulation. So we really ask ourselves, is this more of a dose or product uh, of reversal in of itself? Or is it the fact that we're withholding something that had been treating these patients that were historically prothrombotic, you know? I mean, these patients come on, are on these particular agents for a reason. And if you're holding that agent, maybe we're not initiating it too quick. Well, it makes sense that a patient who requires long-term anticoagulation is at pretty high risk for thrombotic events. Should everyone who has a DOAC-related bleed be restarted on anticoagulation? And if not, how do you decide who should be restarted on anticoagulation? Yeah, and this is um, something that we probably, as a whole team, need to consider right up front um, uh, with this particular therapy. You know, some people might not need to go back on anticoagulation. And there are a couple indications that I would say would lend itself to discontinuing it upon review. And those are kind of be, kind of be the low-risk patients, maybe someone with a very low chad suvask and a relatively um, chastity vast score with a stroke, uh, or maybe it's someone that had an initial temporary indication in the first place, and that time has since passed. Um, those are gonna be those particular patients that maybe we don't restart. And then more importantly, if there are patients that we as clinicians think that they need to be restarted, we probably need to get the patient and the family members in the mix and see if they're willing to even restart the agent in the first place, because you know that's very important because we need to lay out the risk benefits associated with restarting these particular agents, because obviously they had this bleeding event and they might be a little bit nervous to even do so. What I would actually note was some patients can't even afford this particular, the particular agents that were on in the first place. So even taking that into consideration when, when you're talking about restarting oral anticoagulation. Okay. So ultimately you're, you're likely going to have um, a lot of patients that will need to restart anticoagulation, but how do you decide when the right time is? Do we wait a certain number of days or weeks after the bleeding event or is there how do you approach that? So I think the biggest part of this is determining if, it, if it's safe, right? I think that's the biggest question. That's the biggest elephant in the room that we have when it comes to restarting, when to restart um, these particular agents. I think when we're starting to think about um, this particular, when we're at this stage of their care and their management, we need to think about where did that bleed occur? 
is that patient still at very high risk for a rebleed or maybe death or disability associated with a rebleed? Did we actually identify and maybe uh, cauterize or ban that source of bleed or did they require surgical hemostasis and was that actually achieved? Or are they planning on going back to a procedure maybe, you know, because not all patients go and get their, uh, they're not one and done, so to speak. You know, they, they don't go in, get a procedure, they're done, they're reversed and get out. A lot of them actually still have recurrent bleeding or maybe the source wasn't controlled and they have to go back in. Those patients you wouldn't really consider, right? So I think that's the first and foremost, uh, the case that you need to take when you're approaching the initial stages. Then you have to ask yourself um, which agent you're gonna use. Um, if in fact you do decide the time is right. For me, in terms of the the timing, again, it goes back to whether or not I can withhold this therapy or if I need to because of a high risk. So if there's someone that had a a, a recent PE, those patients are going to be high risk. You're going to want to start quicker, right? You're not going to want to withhold weeks. Those patients are very high risk for decompensation or versus someone who had maybe um, a DVT that was provoked two months ago. Those patients, you might it might be a little softer. That's how I kind of look at it. I look at my risk benefits and I'm looking at if in an acute setting, can I wait and should I wait before restarting? Okay, so when you do have one of those patients that are at very high risk for thrombosis, is the only option to restart their oral anticoagulant, or are there other ways to minimize thrombotic risk for those high-risk patients? Yeah, um, so not everyone has to go straight to the full-blown anticoagulation, right? I think um, this is kind of going back to looking at the literature available to us. A lot of those patients in the reversal studies that did have uh, thrombotic events had VTEs and not necessarily strokes, and this is despite being almost two-thirds of patients being an AFib. So I can I would like to think that we can safely at least at minimum the early intervention be uh, VTE prophylaxis, whether it be anoxaparin or heparin. Now um, sometimes you can consider in in terms of patients that need to be on full-blown anticoagulation, consider a, and be in patients still, consider something like a parenteral, like a heparin drip that's quick on, quick off, in the setting of maybe you need to go to an acute procedure, or maybe uh, they need uh, something to turn on and off, or rather quickly if there is concern for a re-bleeding event. Uh, that might be something to consider. And even more so, I think, procedurally based, there are a lot of people looking towards uh, left arterial appendages or like um, certain devices for AFib that uh, lend itself to preventing full-blown anticoagulation. Um, other alternatives may be like an IVC filter as well, but not everyone actually has to go straight to an oral anticoagulant. We should probably be thinking about if they can't go straight to an oral anticoagulation, are they high risk enough for us to consider a warrant maybe parenteral uh, for a short term or even VT prophylaxis? Okay, I'm sure there's probably the option of using some mechanical things as well. Now, bleeding that occurs as a result of a DOAC is clearly an adverse event from the medication. And as pharmacists, we're the experts at really digging in and finding out what the root cause of an adverse effect like this could be. So what do you look for when you're trying to figure out what was the cause of the bleeding event in the first place? When we're talking about these particular agents, um, we're looking at 
what really exacerbated the bleed itself. A common misconception is that the drug itself inherently by itself is the reason that we have the bleeds uh, happen. And really, this is generally not the case. We really do have well-established PK, PD criteria for the DOACs, specifically in stable patients. And that, that information really lends itself to some predictable results. However, we do know that these agents being anticoagulants, uh, they can exacerbate any sort of existing risk for a bleed. And that's what kind of what we do downstream of a bleeding event is try to identify those. Um, for me, what I'm looking at is any particular um, potentiation of this effect, meaning something like a dual antiplatelet therapy initially, and then switch over to triple therapy. So you and I had talked about in a previous webinar about the exponential risk of bleeding uh, as you progressively go up the, the ladder, if you will, with uh, antiplatelet therapy, for instance. So if you're on a single antiplatelet and then you go on to an anticoagulation, specifically a DOAC, you have an increased risk of bleed. If you now then add on top of that with ADAPT therapy with DOAC, then that is a tre tremendously increased as well. So I think looking at those options, or not those options, looking at those causes might allow us downstream or at the very end of their care and, and, and thinking about post-reversal, maybe altering that, that management. Did they even need triple therapy in the first place? There's Now we've moved so far removed from triple therapy in all patients that only a select amount of people would even need that. So that might be in consideration that you might have to think about as well. Another thing to think about, I like to think about, is uh, maybe any sort of drug disease interactions or maybe drug, um, I guess, organ interactions. In particular, people with CKD or, um, you know, small body habitus, like for instance, apixaban. There are some dosing considerations with a lower dose in patients that meet two or three criteria. And sometimes I, I'll see patients on the five milligram uh, twice daily when they could be, in fact, a 2.5 uh, 2 milligram uh, dose instead. So looking at those particular things, drug-drug interactions, drugs-disease interactions, anything that can exacerbate the effect and, or potentiate the effect are, are going to be the things that I'm looking for. Well, I, certainly finding the, the root cause would hopefully help the patient feel more comfortable restarting anticoagulation later if it was something you could prevent down the line. Well, that's all the time we have. And I want to thank Jason for joining me today. And thank you for tuning in to this session of Therapeutic Thursday. Don't forget to check out the initiative website at www.ashpadvantage.com backslash stop bleed. We hope that you enjoyed today's conversation and be sure to subscribe to ASHP Podcasts through your favorite podcast provider. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.